The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, it's the holiday season here in the United States and in much of the world, and so we have for you a special treat to take away your holiday cares. So put down those shopping bags, kick up your feet, and enjoy a conversation with a wonderful Irish writer. The winner of the Man Booker Prize and many other prizes has a new novel called The Wren the Wren. Anne Enright, today on The History of Literature. I'm Jack Wilson, your host. Welcome to the History of Literature, your podcast, at least for the next hour or so. I'm very glad you're here. So, I didn't quite bury the lead, by the way. If you've been watching Albert Brooks lately, thanks to the new documentary on his life on HBO Max, directed by his lifelong friend Rob Reiner, well, I won't spend too much time on Albert Brooks today, except to say he might be my favorite comedian ever comedian and artist. Maybe Christopher Guest is up there with him too. But Albert Brooks has delivered some of the best I love you exchanges in the movies. What do we have in real life? What do we say? We say, I love you, followed by, I love you too. That's the most common one, right? That's the safe bet. If you're in real life, you find yourself in this situation, I highly recommend it. If you go first, I love you is probably better than trying to fancy it up. And I love you too is practically mandatory. And it's such a cliche that people often drop it to just I love you. They'll say, I love you. I love you. But that's a little plain for novels or films isn't it? We can do more. We can see more character development from that exchange. A famous exchange is Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, whose first encounter produces a perfect 14-line sonnet, a love poem that the two of them compose on the fly and deliver together, interacting with one another. It's about as romantic and and sexy in a pointy-headed way. That's about as romantic as you'll find. In modern times, we have something a little different. Not that flowery, more like two characters wrangling for power or revealing something about the relationship's dynamics. A very famous example is a Harrison Ford ad lib from the movie uh, The Empire Strikes Back. As Princess Leia says to his Han Solo, I love you, and he responds, I know. I love you too was right there for Han, low-hanging fruit, but he reached for a higher branch. I know. I know children who will say, I love you, to their parent, and their parent responds, I love you more. Well, that's kind of weird, isn't it? Turning absolute love into something aggressive, competitive, almost hostile. Well, Albert Brooks has a genius line in his movie, Mother, where his mother says, I love you, to Albert, and Albert responds, I know you think you do. An entire relationship 
so much pain in that, but also so much grace. It's kind of forgiveness, but it's basically saying, (laughs) you don't really, you're deluded and you've always wounded me. You've never given me love, but I recognize now at this advanced age that you think you do. Mm. Whole relationship delivered in that exchange. And the other exchange that I'm thinking about is a famous speech in broadcast news where he and Holly Hunter play television newscasters and Albert Brooks is in love with the Holly Hunter character, but she's in love with the character played by William Hurt. And Albert Brooks is the smart, funny friend who, like her, is serious about the news. And William Hurt is the handsome guy not as good to her, and he's vapid. He's the style over substance newscaster that Holly Hunter and Albert Brooks have been resisting. They think it's watering down the news, and yet she's fallen for him. And Albert Brooks, the nice guy, but condemned to be second best. He delivers this speech to her about Hurt, how Hurt is not the right guy for her. Hurt's character's name is Tom, and he says, Tom while being a very nice guy, is the devil. And Albert Brooks ends up by saying, he personifies everything you've been fighting against, and I'm in love with you. And then he pauses while that sinks in. She winces at the news, at that bombshell, like, oh no, oh no, this is going to end in pain for us. It will hurt me to hurt you. It hurts me to hear you say this because I know what's ahead. And then Albert Brooks says, how do you like that? I buried the lead. I buried the lead. The perfect thing to say. He's wry. He knows he's losing. But he hasn't lost that wit, that nod to their shared profession, the friendship they have, and their commitment to journalism. The very things that that maybe, just maybe, would give him a chance with her. But the way he delivers it, it's basically saying, I love you, don't even bother to respond. I'll go back to being me, the best friend you've ever had. So, buried the lead. And a vote against cliches. That's what we've started with here. Our guest today, Anne Enright, has a background in television as well, and she's a great fighter against cliches in her novels. But all that tangent was just because I was I got caught up in the phrase buried the lead. And I had these amorphous Albert Brooks thoughts to expunge. If you're looking for a good watch, by the way, try Albert Brooks's movie Lost in America. That is unforgettable, which I will not spoil for you. Okay. Where was I with I buried the lead? Oh right. My introduction. I didn't bury the lead in the introduction because the lead is that Anne Enright will be here soon. But I did fail to mention a very nice harmony of the spheres moment, which is that I was grumbling a little last time that Emily Dickinson had been delivering poem after poem about death as we walk through her selected poems, poems selected by Helen Vendler. Frankly, I was wondering if we needed to mix in a more upbeat poet in order to explore something not quite so macabre and maudlin. What was the Billy Collins line? I heard him say this at a reading. He said, tonight I'll be like all poets and read you one poem about my dog and 17 poems about death. I was looking for a poem about the dog. Where's Emily's poem about the dog? Something brighter, something with a little more sunshine. 
a little more of a side of a, a different side of humanity other than the all too human awareness of our own mortality. Now, don't get me wrong. Dickinson is a she's a bona fide genius. She can take us places we rarely visit with anyone else, and I'm not going to complain too much about her choice of subjects. But just as I was thinking this, in she comes with the next one on the list. We're following these in order, as selected for us by esteemed critic Helen Vendler. And just when I wanted a poem that had a little something other than death, the next poem in the book is a famous poem, and it is really not about death, except in the sense that enjoying life always has a little tinge in it, that things can't last forever, they won't. It's implied, even if it's not explicit. So here we go. This is poem 269, 12 lines in three quatrains. I will read the poem, analyze it, and then read it once more. Here we go. My heart is thumping. This is such a famous classic poem. Here we go. 269. Wild nights, wild nights, were I with thee, wild nights should be our luxury. Futile, the winds to a heart in port, done with the compass, done with the chart. Rowing in Eden, ah, the sea, might I but more tonight in thee. Okay, pretty sexy, actually. Dickinson is letting her hair down and her guard. This is the kind of breathless romantic love that takes us into a metaphor. Love is stormy, but we embrace that anyway. That might be what we want from love, from young love or new love anyway. This isn't the love in of year 49 of a 50-year marriage. This is the love that's new and fresh and exciting, maybe forbidden. It's why we have the phrase falling in love. Why we say head over heels in love. You can't think straight. You get reckless. You feel like you're dangerously out of control, but you go for it. Because that kind of love releases so many good things inside you. And if it's reciprocated, the two of you have a kind of shared sensibility. You're in the foxhole together. Or in this case, the two of you weather a storm. In one another's arms, perhaps. A raging wild tempest out there on the sea while the two of you find your peace and tranquility and comfort in one another's arms or even just presence. It's almost deeper than sex. It's the spirituality of communion, of sexual communion. It begins wild nights, dash, wild nights, exclamation mark. I like this phrase so much. Dickinson seems to be saying that I'll say it twice with more emphasis on the second one. And then, were I with thee, wild nights should be our luxury. We, should, we would have these wild nights together. We'd luxuriate in them if we were together. The next stanza, move, stanza moves us into the world of the stormy sea. Futile, the winds to a heart in port. Right? Winds can't shake us when we've found one another. Everything around us will be wild and raging, but that won't touch us. We're done with the compass, done with the chart. We're, we're at shore now, docked. The ship has landed. We don't need the instruments of confused people trying to get home. We are home. And then rowing in Eden. Rowing. Now we're not a ship at sea. Being tossed about on the waves our sails flapping in the winds, we're, we're able to row. 
and the sea is like paradise because it brought us this love, rowing in Eden. Ah, the sea, might I but more tonight in thee. Now, if she said, might I but more tonight with thee, that'd be a very different poem, wouldn't it? We will be together. We will be with each other. I'm looking forward to it. But she says, in thee, obviously. That raises the idea of sex. But also, as I said, a kind of melding of souls. I'm safest in your presence because I fall into your soul. I lose myself in you. And here's where Dickinson's dashes and punctuation work perfectly. It's hesitant. It's breathless. It's choosing carefully. It's gasping out words. It's hesitant, but then ecstatic. It's a poet in love. A couple of words to focus on. Luxury. The perfect word. Wealth. Almost too much wealth. And conjuring up luxuriate, which is what emperors and empresses might do. Lie on the couch eating grapes, overindulging. That's the kind of love you feel when you've survived the storm and you have nowhere to go, but you're totally safe now. The storm where you are is as gentle as Eden. No longer tossed about like ships on crashing waves. You're rowing across it, a calm and gentle sea. And then this word, maybe my favorite word in the poem. Might I but more, dash, tonight, dash, in thee. Tonight, that's the word, tonight. Everything else is abstract in the poem, vague, the kind of thing a poet does in the comfort of his or her own home, recollecting in a kind of tranquility. There are no real stakes other than, than a poet trying to capture the moment and preserve it in words for all time and communicate it effectively. But that word tonight is different. That word says, oh no, oh no. Don't think this is just some literary exercise. There are stakes. There are stakes right now. I need this. I need this tonight. I'm not just throwing this out there for posterity. I'm trying to go get it very soon in hours, in minutes, in seconds, right now, tonight. That gives the poem a kind of immediacy that the first line promises. Wild nights, dash, wild nights, exclamation mark. Yes, here we go. Not in my distant and unimaginable future. It's go time, lover. <laughs> okay, that's poem 269, a Dickinsonian masterpiece. Here we go. I'll read it one more time. Wild nights, wild nights. Were I with thee, wild nights should be our luxury. Futile the winds to a heart in port, done with the compass, done with the chart. Rowing in Eden, ah, the sea, might I but more tonight in thee. Okay, we will take a short break, and then we'll talk to Anne Enright, author of many excellent novels, including her latest, The Wren the Wren, which includes a swerve into poetry itself. She'll explain all that in a moment, and then we'll close things out today. Let's make this Dublin Day, as we'll close things out with a My Last Book by Chris Morish, who is here to discuss Dublin as a city for writers. We'll hear what he chooses as the last book he will ever read. All that after this. Music 
Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Anne Enright, who has been awarded the Man Booker Prize, the Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence, a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Irish Book Awards, and she was the first laureate for Irish fiction from 2015 to 2018. She's here today to discuss her new novel, The Wren, the Wren, which deals with the inheritance of trauma, wonder, and love across three generations of women. Anne Enright, welcome to the History of Literature. It's lovely to be here, Jack. Thanks for having me. So let's start with your background. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Dublin, Ireland, um, mm. where I still live, though not quite in the same house. Although the same, I was in the same house there last night. We didn't move much as a family. Yeah, just a very kind of low-key, smallish, middle-class house in Dublin. Yeah. And what kind of childhood would you say that you had? Well, um, it's always hard to describe one's own childhood, isn't it? I was the last of five children, the youngest of five. So I was doted on and kind of poked and prodded <laughs> by my four elder siblings. But actually, I, I, I was looking around last night at the bookshelves and seeing the many books that there were by the standards of the time, I suppose, even, and thinking about how those kind of um, were still kind of close if, I don't know, families can never be close quite. Do you know what I mean? We mm. still uh, annoy each other in the same way as we did growing up. <laughs> um, uh, so that that's pretty that's pretty close, I suppose, yeah. um, uh, uh, these many years later. Was reading an important part of your childhood? Well, it really was. I mean, because as the youngest of the siblings... Uh, I've been asked recently, when did I learn how to read? And I was a very early and precocious reader. And mm -hmm. one of the reasons was that once my elder sister went to school, my mother had me all to herself and she kind of taught me how to read uh, or my letters. And then the older kids would come home and, and they would teach, you know, it was part of, it was a game to teach me how to read, mm -hmm. basically. Mm -hmm. um, so I was reading by... Certainly at three and by four, my first book I remember was uh, Now We Are Six by A.A. A. Milne, who wrote Winnie the Pooh. I was 
utterly thrilled and delighted because I was only four and I had a book for a six-year-old and the preciousness of that, I was chasing it online recently just to, I mean, I couldn't recite the poems, but I remember the colour of the cover and the pictures and it just really stirs me to, to be around yeah. the, that, that book now. It's yeah. just amazing. You know, I have two boys and the older one, we taught him how to read and everything was age appropriate, you know, for his level. Like we first we taught him the ABCs and then we moved on to Dr. Seuss books and so on and so on up the ladder until, you know, everything he was ready for. My younger son would look at the older son and what he was reading and my younger son refused to have anything to do with, you know, what he considered to be sort of a baby book. He would rather open up a Harry Potter and just turn the pages, even though he had no idea how to read. But he would Absolutely. rather do that than go back to something that he knew his older brother was beyond. Uh, yeah, you're always chasing after something when you're young. So I'm never quite catching up. Uh, but everybody had different bookshelves in the house, not very, you know, huge or anything. There was not a huge amount of money around, but they all had different tastes in books. So one, my eldest brother was into science fiction when he was about 13. So I read all of those books and mm -hmm. my elder sister went to university when I was 12. So there were all of those kind of 19th century novels and well, kind of various interesting little texts there. Voltaire's Candide stands out yeah. as suitable for an 11 year old, I suppose. And my elder brother liked Thomas Hardy. And then there was one sister who shall remain nameless, who had terrible taste in cheap fiction. <laughs> I mean, it must have been total snobs because we used to kind of slag her for her, um, which is, we used to tease her for her terrible taste. Right. <laughs> now, were any of your siblings writing stories? Do you remember when you started writing stories or, or poetry, if you wrote any? I do remember my siblings weren't actually writing, although I was very invested in their handwriting. I don't know if that's the case with your kids, but I, I learned how, you know, I, I do a Greek E when I'm oh. writing by hand. Yeah. And that's that's very fancy. <laughs> <laughs> I got that from my sister who developed her handwriting. Um, no, I was the only one who was writing fiction. Mm. And was that at an early age? So the first thing I remember was a poem I wrote when I was 11 mm. and I treasured mm -hmm. it and kept it and was very pleased. I mean, I was writing purely for for joy and for possession. You know, you have it then when it's done. Yeah. I think kids are like that. The big, you know, when people say, how do you write fiction? I want to say, well, how do you stop a child mm. from doing all those things so naturally, you know? Yeah, right. And do you have any sense that, I mean, Ireland is so famous for its writers and for its support of writers. Did you feel that at all? Did you have, was there any, or did you have any teachers or anyone in your family who was sort of saying like, well, in, in Ireland, you know, it's it's a good thing to be a writer. It's It's something we treasure here. Yeah. I think it was it was so known that it wasn't stated. Mm, I mean, mm -hmm. it was it was part of the atmosphere. So we would have had 
the short stories of Frank O'Connor in a big row. They would. We, we, I also went to the library with my mother every Thursday and I went to the library on my own, a different library after school. I mean, I really, really read as a young person. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, but yeah, Frank O'Connor was was big. Mary Lavin. There was also this thing that my mother had. Her, her mother had gone to university, which was unusual in in those days. One of the earliest women in Ireland to get a degree, and so I don't know whether that fed into my mother's sightings of writers. Uh, Mary Lavin, the short story writer, would write her stories in Bewley's, which is a coffee shop in Dublin, while her girls were at school. Um, and then she would drive them home. So she it was known that she would sit and write in this coffee shop in the middle of town. Yeah. And and another writer, Walter Mackin, would um, be seen in the local church, although he was a banned and censored writer, <laughs> quite disgraceful <laughs> in a small way. I mean, that was kind of part of it, too. Yeah. Do you write in public? Oh, I write anywhere. I'm tough. I'm tough. So maybe there are people who are, are viewing you the way your mother used to cite those writers. Ah, uh, yeah, but you know, Ireland is <laughs> everybody is known in Ireland. It's nothing. It's nothing special. You know what I mean? Uh, so I'm just saying that the writers were special to my mother. Yeah. Oh, right, right. The woman who came in to clean imitated W. B. Yeats walking up along Stephen's Green. Imitated. You mean? Yeah, she walked up and down the hall with her hands behind her back. Oh, uh, uh, with the the hand kind of going in in time to Yeats is there making up his poems. Yeah, right. Goes from generation to generation. Is that enough of an answer now to your question? Yeah, yeah right. Yes, it makes me want to move to Ireland. Actually, <laughs> yeah, it's still going well. Uh, that all of that. It's still. It's still a literary success story, really. Mm. So then you went to college and you started work in a different field, uh, I understand. I so you were in television for a while. What was that experience was. like? Well, I I got it. I was going to be a writer and I did an MA in creative writing. And, mm. and then I got this job by accident. It was a bit of a diversion. But you can't you couldn't turn down a job in those days. So mm -hmm. I, I took it on and I was running around like a young creative um, making programs in TV for, for the next six years. Mm. And were you writing scripts or producing shows or? Yeah, I was doing a very kind of creative late night show where you basically it was a bit anarchic, a bit chaotic, and you could do whatever you liked. So I was working both with writers and maybe a little, I don't think I really wrote myself to get little sketches out. We were doing all of that kind of thing um, and satirical responses to the news. So it was very busy and it did involve, well, I was directing. It's a million years ago now. It's over 30 years ago. Yeah. I was one of those young, bring them in and run them around sort of creative types. Yeah. It must have been fulfilling at some level creatively, but were you also writing fiction while you were working this job? Yeah, I kind of wondered at the time and then later what I would have been able to uh, put down on the page if I hadn't been, you know, running around like a lunatic mm -hmm. producing programs. I, um, I was very committed to publishing as a writer myself and I used to go home on 
uh, Friday evening and go to the cinema by, by myself and then spend Saturday and Sunday writing short stories. And I did that, I don't know for how long. There was a lot of social life involved during the week and the telly, so I didn't need to I didn't need to be out and about at the weekend, and I would just shut the door. And I put together my first book of short stories that way. I must have been very committed, I think. Yeah, right. Was that book of short stories, what was, did that enable you to make the break from television, or how did that come about? I mean, when people want to leave a paying job, I always say, you know, you have to build a bridge somehow. Mm -hmm. And so that was my bridge, basically, that out of the place that I could, I had published by the time I left. So that worked more or less. Right. So you weren't tempted to stay in television. You always knew that if you could write full time, that that's what you wanted to do. I think so. But I also ran out of road more or less in television. And I realized mm. that if I did well in television, I might be kind of promoted to run a quiz or something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, <laughs> ambition in television is a funny animal because what are you ambitious for? Anyway, the <laughs> The program I was on and loved and kind of made was discontinued after four years. And I went into children's TV, which is a lot of fun. But yeah. also I was really burnt out at that stage. I was mm. really at the rag end of my, that impetus, that creative endeavor was gone. So I, I basically, I had to leave. I mean, I hadn't, I didn't have any other personal choice. I had no gas left in that tank. Mm. Was the book of short stories a runaway success or was it just that it gave you a kind of feeling that that you could do it, that there was a, a stamp of approval by the fact that it was published? Well, you know, I mean, I don't know what success is or isn't. In those days, there was no Internet. So you didn't know if a book was a success or not. It was published by a very respected publisher and it was a in hardback and it looked very fine and I'm sure it sold a few copies. It was reviewed internationally, but weirdly, I think not in Ireland. It was, um, and it was, <laughs> it was uh, you know, these were very quiet days in the book industry. There were no events, as far as I know. There might have been a conference now and then. So, yeah, no, you just turn around and write another one. I, I do remember this. There was one week I realized, oh, I've just published a book. I mean, not that first book, but maybe the third book. <laughs> you just Nothing happened. <laughs> it's like a year later, you turn around and say, oh, that went well. Oh, it's out. Yeah, I could buy that in the store now if I want. <laughs> it's probably in the store, but it may not be in yeah, the store. Right. If I look, go to enough stores. <laughs> yeah, if I go to... <laughs> um, and, and and that went well. So so it was, a, I used to say, a succès d'estime, as a, meaning that it was well regarded. Mm. But I don't think it ran out of the shops or anything. Right. Okay, let's take a quick break and then come back with more from Anne Enright. Okay, we're back. So, Anne, tell us about The Wren, the Wren. What is this novel about? So, The Wren, the Wren is about three people, I suppose, who are related. They're all the McDowell's. One of them is a dead poet. And then there's the middle person is his daughter, Carmel. And the final person is her daughter, Nell. And I suppose it's about 
and there are a number of questions that are asked, and one of them is kind of what is it to live a poetical life? Phil, the the dead poet, he he leaves his family, you know, uh, when Carmel, his daughter, is twelve years old, and he goes off being a poet, living a free life elsewhere. After which Carmel really sort of withdraws into a very pragmatic personality. She's mm. a very kind of get herself sort of person, not interested in sensitivities of any kind, I, I think. Um, and when Carmel has a daughter, then the the whole problem of Phil comes alive again somehow because Nell is, is the same style of human being. She needs to make her own way. She doesn't play by the rules. She needs, she goes and has a, doomed love affair but not an old-fashioned doomed love affair more kind of doomed love affair that involves the internet she's very contemporary she's in her 20s so these are these three people i don't you know i don't really have a good patter about the book it is about those things that echo and connect and sometimes are wonderful and sometimes kind of strange about how people are from generation to generation. Mm. And, you know, on the back of the book, it says it's about the inheritance of, of trauma and wonder. But I wonder if it is about trauma, really, because Phil leaves. So he's it's an absence. And of course, absence can be traumatic. But it's absence, you know. Well, I can tell you, if I had read this book when I was, let's say, 20, uh, I would have not thought a whole lot about Phil. I, I would have thought, well, I don't want to be Phil. And yeah. I would have not thought a whole lot about Carmel. I would have thought about Nell and thought, yeah. yes, she finds her inspiration and she has to go follow her path. But yeah. the older I get, <laughs> the more I find myself drawn to the mother and not the, okay. and not the uh, you know, the one in the middle, Carmel, yeah. who... Because I, I think it is so natural when you have something like a father who has abandoned the family to feel like, well, why did he do that? Oh, to be a poet. Okay, I'm going to turn away from that. And I'm going to say I would have I, I wish he would have been not a poet, a more practical person who would have stayed at home and, and yeah. you know, stayed with the family and, and helped us put food on the table and so on. And then to see your daughter who has these inclinations and to be in that, to be pulled apart like that, to feel like, well, I want you to be practical and pragmatic because that's what I value. But on the other hand, wanting to let your daughter live her life, uh, it's the kind of thing that as a parent, I feel much more acutely than I ever would have felt when I was 20 years old. Sure. And, and Nell looks at her mother and, say, and thinks she's the most boring person in the whole world. Right, right. You gave up. You, you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think now she's kind of a hero. She is admirable. Mm-hmm. She's faint. But she ha- there is a kind of, I think she is properly tragic, though, mm-hmm. in a way, mm-hmm. um, because she won't reach she can't get there you know she she doesn't this ideas of transcendence or of the imagination and it makes her also less empathetic as a human being so she kind of has limited herself right, deliberately. Right. yeah you know i don't judge my characters that harshly mm-hmm. even phil who should be harshly judged is given a fair crack of the whip really mm-hmm. uh, a fair uh, he's given a run for his money really and we see where he came from, which was uh, an idealized rural poverty, you know, but 
poverty is poverty, whether you can make poetry out of it or not, you know. Mm. So I'm quite interested in how perspectives alter as the years change. So Phil, he would have been seen as an esteemed sort of figure in his lifetime. And then that kind of fades away over time. And the questions that Carmel asks really, like, what is public life to your family? It, it's nothing. Mm, right. It's just a foreign country. It's where they go when they've gone from you. Yeah. Now, the book also includes some of the poetry by famed Irish poet uh, Phil McDara. And whenever I see this in a novel, I think, oh boy, the author has taken on an extra degree of difficulty. It, the poetry yeah. is supposed to be excellent. and But it, it's also a great device to reveal things about a character. I mean, there's hardly anything that can be potentially more intimate or more autobiographical or or just more of the inner life of a character and and telling us something about who they are than to see the poetry they've written. So what were you hoping to do with the poetry of Phil McDara? So first of all, when I say he was a well-regarded poet, he wasn't one of the greats, okay? okay. I wasn't going to try and write. I was going to say... So you're not going to out Yeats Yeats. <laughs> I'm not going to out Yeats Yeats. And I'm... I'm <laughs> He's also, he's 15 years older than Seamus Heaney and uh, Michael Longley and those amazing Northern Northern poets, that flowering of Northern poetry in the 70s. So the poetry just had to be good enough, mm-hmm. um, but it also had to be revealing. Yes, intimate and showing Phil his self-regard mm. and how self-involved he was in a way that's less fashionable <laughs> now. Yeah, right. It's perfect for that dynamic we're talking about of you can view that in two ways. If you're the person who was abandoned, you think of the self-regard as, well, that just goes to show he was an egotist. And if you're somebody who admires him and kind of feels pulled in that direction yourself, you think, you know, you're more tolerant of it. Yeah, it does beg some questions about artistic sadness and misery, though. Um, you know, it's, oh, I'm a terrible person. I must write a poem about how terrible I am. You know, that mm. mode. <laughs> like, yeah. And and I suppose we all feel the same sometimes, but really, you know. Uh, I mean, Phil isn't able to see the damage he does in any other way uh, uh, than a kind of problem for him. He's mm. kind of completely self-referential in an odd sort of way. And it's it's surprisingly common, actually. Mm. Uh, Among poets. Actually, most of the poets I know are really nice people. Yeah. Very, very thoughtful and very measured and, you know, uh, playful and nice. But maybe among a certain style of artist, yes. Mm-hmm. And they find a reward from the public, as you suggested yeah. earlier. They they find a kind of a claim from the public that it sort of almost replaces or supplants the feelings that they're getting from the people closest to them. Well, sure, that that's one thing. But actually, first of all, they have made something that satisfies them and to them is beautiful or nearly beautiful. And they get an awful lot from that, too. I mean... It's not all about fame. It's 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 about reaching for something wonderful. Mm. That sounds a little bit like uh, the famed eleven-year-old Irish poet Anne Enright. <laughs> <laughs> Finding the beautiful. 
I think that hits in adolescence. All that yearning, high-mindedness. I didn't have at 11. But yeah, 14, no, they were all there then. <laughs> okay, is there a passage from uh, the novel that you can read for us so listeners can get a sense of what the book is like? Uh, yes, I can. So this is Nell, and she's on her travels late in the book. And there's a lot of birds in the book, so this is just a bird passage. Mm -hmm. uh, it is technically true that I am the last of the McDarrells, though there might be some second cousins in Chicago and a few over in Hull, where Phil's older sister was a nurse. These facts didn't interest me until I left Ireland, the way they don't. But I got an Irish tattoo in Sydney. I think it was the jet lag. I considered getting the Ren the Ren written along the opposite collarbone to the other tattoo I had, but changed my mind at the last minute and asked for a fine line Ren, very minimal, in that space between the thumb and forefinger on my left hand. I wanted something tiny, I said. The Ren has to be plump and its beak should be wide open so when I have nothing else to do, I can wiggle my thumb and watch it sing. Then I got fussed about twig or no twig. No twig, I said. It's just there. I was on my way to Auckland where I had friends on work visas and a place to stay. I didn't know why I was in Sydney exactly. I thought I could write something, but the place escaped me. I went to the wrong coffee shops in the wrong districts. I didn't want to go out on my own at night, even though it felt like the middle of the day. On my third afternoon, tripping on sunlight, I sat in the botanical gardens watching the birds. I was hoping to see the sacred kingfisher because I've loved kingfishers ever since I saw one on the daughter when I was a girl. I don't collect them. I just like to say hello. The way to see the bird you want to see is to stop looking for it. We all know this. You have to undo your gaze. Let the bird happen without you. Be alert to blue. There was no shortage of action in the botanical gardens that afternoon. The noisy miner, fussed and aggressive, the white ibises with their curving black commas for beaks. I thought I spotted a gala cockatoo pink against a pinkish eucalyptus and then decided I had not. A group of small long-tailed birds was streaked across by the blue of the breeding male and my heart fluttered, yes, at the sight of its tiny magnificence. This was a superb fairy wren. The birds in Australia are just ridiculous. The fairy wrens are so beautiful, their beauty is included in their English names. There is the superb with his sky blue cap, the splendid of electric blue, and the lovely fairy wren with chestnut wings, various other showboats intensely hued. There's no real fairy content in the fairy wren, whose name was made up a couple of hundred years ago. Its older local name is Muruduin. When it came to getting my new ink, it turned out that I did not want a splendid or a lovely or even a Muruduin, but something more drab. I wanted a little damp, secretive thing with a big hidden voice. Turns out I missed the birds of home. The artist couldn't get a handle on it. You sure that's right? I told her it's not the same wren. They're not even related. They just have the same name. Birds. Don't care what we call them, I said. And she said, so true. This woman had some fabulous work, a lotus opening on her throat and foliage sneaking out from under her cuff. She was sketching quickly on paper, working from the image I showed her on my phone. It's a rape, isn't it? She said, by which 
She meant, I think, what we do to nature. Australia was not fitting into my unfinished guidebook for anxious travellers. No one I met seemed to be anxious in the way I understood the word. It certainly is, I said. And I thought, Carmel would love it here. She is a searching young person, but I like her. <laughs> yeah, she's got everything going for her. I, I think, oh, well, I mean, you know, she makes lots of mistakes and she's annoying in some small ways. But I think I made her up so she could be loved, you know. Mm-hmm. Wonderful thing that youth has. And, and what Nell has from the get go is what babies have when they come out. That idea that you look at a new human being and they are so entirely themselves. Mm, right. That real kind of sense of surprise. And Nell doesn't lose that uh, way of just being absolutely herself, no matter what. Right. Now, were birds, is is that something you've had a, a passion for? Or did you do research for the book? Or where did the birds come from? Yeah, I did research for the book. The Wren, the Wren, which is a title I loved as soon as it landed, is from an old Irish song. Every year on the day after Christmas Day, mummers go around the countryside in masks and costumes and they sing this song, the wren, the wren, the king of all birds. And they're looking for money from the various households they pass. Mm. It's a little bit like Halloween, but they kill or used to in the old days, kill a little wren, which is a druidic bird. It goes all the way back in the Irish tradition. And why do they why do they kill one? Well, the, all the all the kind of myths and folkloric stories about the wren are that it betrayed people with its big voice. Uh, one Christian one is that it betrayed Christ, I think, and there's another that it betrayed the Irish armies to Cromwell. And then the third story is that it became the king of all birds by riding on the eagle's back and rising up at the last minute out of its feathers. But it, yeah, it wasn't really trusted. Not entirely sure why. Mm. Well, it seems like a a secretive bird in a small package that has a big voice and that is a little bit ominous or potentially menacing seems quite apt for a book about poets. Yeah, well, during the lockdowns in Ireland, I was reading old Irish poetry. And just in maybe April 2020, I was reading these two old, centuries old poems about dead birds. And one was about a dead yellow bittern who died of thirst and it's a drinking poem Mm. and the other was about a lady's pet blackbird that had died and it was a little courtly lament for telling her not to cry and just in april 2020 these two tiny deaths you know centuries ago those those poems just reached out to me as fresh as though they had been written yesterday Mm. and i just found them immensely moving Right. Every small loss, every small loss must be noted and mourned, you know, at a time of general loss. So that's where the birds came from for me. They came from the poetry and they came from the tradition. Um, I mean, I wasn't a birder before I started writing the book. Yeah. I'm thinking that poets are a little bit like birds as well. Mm. In what way? Well, that that they sing and that they're maybe uh, unassuming, but that they they maybe have a big voice and they maybe are people that society sometimes values and appreciates and sometimes uh, doesn't expect to hear from in the way that they do. And, and maybe sometimes poets are saying things that 
society finds uh, objectionable or or uh, threatening. Yeah, all all voice and all song. The thing about bird song is it's far too beautiful for what it needs to do. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Right. I mean, all they have to do is talk to each other and then they produce these amazing. Right. It's like, uh, well, now you're just showing off. Yeah. <laughs> They're little artists, maybe, yeah. How do you think poets are received and how would that have changed for someone of Phil's generation and someone for Nell's? Is it, do you feel like poetry has has kind of gotten, uh, lost a little bit of esteem and its value and place in, in society and the culture? Or do you think in Ireland it's still kind of treated the same way as it would have been uh, for someone of Phil's generation? Well, you know, just up till recently, I mean, up to maybe it was 10 years ago, actually, we had Seamus Heaney mm-hmm. um, and people just adored Seamus. I mean, he, they just adored him and the poets still fulfill some kind of role about, I mean, goodness is too kind of banal a word for it. You know, they they are still very revered in Irish mm-hmm. culture. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the prose writers might be kind of dismissed or criticized or, you know, the poets are a kind of thing unto themselves. Yeah. Boy, we just don't have that in America. The poets are, they're sort of, they're scorned a little bit of, well, why didn't you choose something that would make some money or why, are, you know, maybe you could write a screenplay or... <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, they're, they're exactly. kind of shunted um, off to the side. But uh, it's nice to hear that at least somewhere they're treated with a kind of uh, dignity or a, uh, a reverence. Yeah, I mean, there would also be a why aren't you going out and getting yourself a proper job? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. We're not all Seamus Heaney. <laughs> We're not all Seamus Heaney. And actually, I remember a statistic that, that, that three quarters of the poetry books sold in English uh, around the world were by Seamus Heaney. Wow. Uh, yeah. So there's a lot of poets who are selling five copies on a good year, you know. So, but there is, and I think poets among themselves are are, are kind of tough on both themselves and on each other. They're not Seamus or Paul Muldoon or Michael Longley mm-hmm. or these wonderful work. Right. Okay. Well, the novel is called The Wren, The Wren, written by my guest today. Anne Enright, thank you so much for joining me on The History of Literature. Thank you. Thanks, Jack. It's been lovely. And finally today, Christopher Morish. After we discussed his book, Dublin, A Writer's City, I asked him this special question. Okay, I'm joined now by Chris Morash, author of the book Dublin, A Writer's City. Chris, this question comes from a listener who asks, what do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you will ever read. You can either choose one that exists or describe one that has not yet been written. Jack, I think I'm going to be completely expected on, say the expected thing on this, and it will be Joyce's Ulysses. Oh, yeah. And the reason would be I read it through maybe eight, ten times. I have certainly mm-hmm. I haven't really been counting. Every time I read it, it's like the first time. Mm-hmm. I, I read it and it's like, I don't remember that. Or I, you know, there's a, I see it in a completely new way. Yeah. Um, 
so I don't know of any other book that I have that relationship with mm-hmm. that I can go back to and it shows itself to me in a completely different way every time. Yeah. So I think if I was told, okay, you've got one more book you can read, I think it would have to be that one because I know I, I know it's going to be good and I know it's going to be new. Yeah, it's a very giving book in that way. It is, it is. And Joyce is just doing so many things but doing them with humor as well. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's not hitting you over the head with it. He's doing so many different things that it's almost like a, you know, a kind of a crystal. If you turn it one angle, you see something different. You turn it another angle and you see something different again. So, yeah, it's giving. It's a good word for it. It gives a lot. Mm. Chris Morash, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thanks very much, Jack. It's been a pleasure. Okay, there we go. Wild episodes, wild episodes, exclamation mark, or maybe wild talks, wild talks. The podcasters reply to Dickinson. My thanks to Christopher Morash and to Anne Enright for joining me on this trip today. I hope we navigated the seas of conversation successfully. I don't think they were too stormy, and if they were, the tempest was all mine provided by me. As usual, my guests gamely steer their craft and bring us all safely to shore while I'm still out there. My shoes nailed to the planks, pelted by rain, howling my questions at the wind. Mad Captain Jack, desperately furious, furiously desperate, who will be back for more next time, by the way. Who do we have coming up? Oh, how about this? Books at War, a history of fools... A history of chapters, a holiday story, four tasty treats. Wordsworth has been knocking at the door, but he will need to wait. He's a 2024 kind of guy. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.